we thought if we got big enough, we could potentially create a platform. So to me, it was the best type of risk because our downside was we just made a good real estate investment. And I didn't think there was any chance it was really a bad one in, in realistically. And the upside case there was we learned enough and we built enough technology and got enough experience to build a platform that we could then monetize. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode, recorded on January 30th at his office in Oakland, is with Gary Beasley, the CEO of Roofstock, a single-family rental investment business platform. Gary is one of the true innovators in the SFR business, having started Waypoint Residential, which I think was the first SFR company to go public and to go to scale back during the GFC, taking SFR from a buy cheap, sell higher concept to a long-term investment hold based on an integrated operating platform. Waypoint eventually rolled up in with Starwood's SFR platform and then into Invitation Homes when Gary then left to start Roofstock. This is our fourth show on the SFR business. As you know, I love these conversations pointing to the creation of new real estate asset classes. Check out the archive with prior interviews with Fred Tawami, then head of Invitation Homes and formerly one of the innovators in helping Equity Residential build its scale business platform. Another episode with Chaz Mueller and Dana Hamilton, both then at Progress Residential and formerly at Archstone, and Colin Wheel from Mind Management and one of Gary's colleagues at Waypoint. I invite you to explore the archive. This conversation with Gary is also bookends with our last episode on the single-family home sales business with Brad Inman, and what will be the next episode on Build to Rent with Steve Kimmelman from Redwood Neighborhoods. For those of you who've not noticed, our country has a serious housing shortage, and you know I believe that our industry is a partner, not a combatant for problem-solving. We talk a lot about that on the podcast, and we'll have an upcoming episode, an interview with National Multifamily Housing Council President Sharon Wilson-Gino, diving into that dynamic. I just came back from the ZRG annual meeting in Nashville. Two big takeaways worth spending a moment on. First, I'm lucky and proud to be associated with such an awesome company. ZRG has a great real estate practice within our executive search business, And leaving our annual meeting, I'm particularly impressed with the buildup and integration of our complementary services in interim placement, business consulting, and embedded recruiting that provides a full range of human capital solutions to our clients. The other headline from the conference was Pure Nashville. We had a great guest speaker at the conference, which was the duo of management consultant Jeff Bloomfield and Grammy-winning songwriter Jimmy Yeary, talking about the importance of storytelling in business to make real connections with candidates and clients. You will continue to hear storytelling through these Leading Voices discussions. And the other highlight from Nashville was a recording session I was part of with a Nashville songwriter, Troy Castellano, where a group of ZRGers got to write and record a song. You'll hear excerpts of that song at the end of this episode. My special part was playing backup guitar in the studio nothing more fun. As always, if you have a few minutes, please rate us on your podcast app. If you're not a subscriber, please do follow the show. 
You can also connect with me on LinkedIn and comment on the episode via my posts. If you have comments or questions on the show or want to learn more about how ZRG can help your organization and your human capital needs, feel free to email me at mslepin at zrgpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did with Gary Beasley. So Gary Beasley, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. This is our third or fourth episode on the single family rental business. And the first in two years, it's a real <laughs> business now. It's not going anywhere. Okay. Oh, it, metastasized. It is, yeah. It's, We've it's, really taken root. Yeah. I, I would agree with you. And even last week, a uh, big announcement, Blackstone bought the Tricon portfolio for $3.5 billion. Those mm-hmm. are friends of mine, really good company. Mm-hmm. But so the institutional folks are in this and in this in a big way and back and they're not going anywhere. Correct. So that gives us a lot to talk about today. Why don't you briefly introduce yourself and Roofstock and then we'll go yeah. all over the place. Yeah. So I've been involved in the single family rental space for about a decade. So um, with a couple of partners, we started buying houses back around 2009, 2010 using friends and family money. And we turned that into a platform called Waypoint Homes, which was one of the first platforms in the single family rental space to aggregate um, thousands of homes. So we were early, but I've sort of been at the intersection of real estate and technology for the majority of my career. I've done Mm -hmm. a few different things, which we can talk about in hospitality, more traditional real estate investing. And I've always liked real estate as an asset class and have always liked being able to come up with new business models or apply new technologies to try to move the needle in some way, shape, or form. It's a huge market, generally very slow to adopt change Mm -hmm. in technology. So with Roofstock, we've built a platform for investors in the single family rental space that that really sort of unlocks the asset class for buyers, sellers, and owners so they can use our platform to do it efficiently. So Think about us really as a real estate investment as a service platform. Mm-hmm. So very akin to software as a service, you could come to Roofstock and rent our platform to do whatever you want, use it for as long as you'd like, and then you could stop. You don't have to build a bunch of infrastructure. So a lot of clients can share our infrastructure, our technology, our teams, our data, and we can help you buy, we can help you sell, we can help you manage, and we just do it all on a fee basis. Uh-huh. And when you say investors, can that be an investor who has three properties or yeah. an investor who wants to get into this in an institutional It way? could be one house to 10,000. And so we started the business with very much a retail focus. We started the business about eight years ago with the idea of really making investing more accessible to the retail owner while also pursuing an institutional sell side business. So the uh-huh. idea was we'd aggregate homes from the large REITs and private funds that they would like to sell. And we would sell them with a tenant in place rather than having to go through the MLS, which which is expensive and slow, when investors could come to Roofstock and buy homes that we'd certified as being good properties. We'd certify the tenants, the local property managers, and the homes themselves. And you could buy it online, sight unseen, anywhere in the country. So that that was the original premise of Roofstock is turn a single-family rental home into an investable, tradable asset. And you're trading it out from an institutional investor, say your old company, so Invitation yeah, Homes might be selling 30 deals. You get the You could buy one them. of them, you could buy all 30 of them. And so the idea, the, the supply originally came 
all from institutional sellers. We since broadened that to retail sellers as well. And as the business progressed, what we realized was we had kind of a one and done model. So these trades would happen. Uh-huh. And then the owner of the property would then go off into the sunset and we'd have to continue to acquire new buyers. And uh-huh. we, we decided strategically it made sense to vertically integrate into property management, which we've since done. We bought a couple of property management companies and integrated them in. And that's, that's been a really important unlock for our business. So we've gone from just a trading platform in the early days right. to a full stack investment services platform to where we can now provide services from the very early helping people figure out their underwriting, their buy boxes, their markets, and, and you know, what they want to do, execute those trades, manage the properties, and then ultimately sell them. Uh-huh. on the back end. And we could do that all with our system. And it's all built on some pretty cool technology, which we can talk about, um, which really powers the whole business. And yeah. really the, the objective is to increase transparency, increase liquidity, drive down costs of, of transactions, all these things that have been problems for real estate mm-hmm. for many decades, for lots of reasons, structural inertia, and just the way things go. But now, as we're moving into the digital age, squarely, um, there's no reason a lot of these legacy processes need to be the same that they were decades ago. Uh-huh. The last podcast that people will hear what, from the last one was with Brad Inman. Yeah. And we talked a lot about technology and change and disruption. In a business, it's quite transparent. So transparency is no longer an issue in single family. It home used to be. Sales. When I got to, to know be. Brad, when, when he was back at HomeGain right. um, years ago, they were a lead supplier to us at Zip Realty. And mm-hmm. Zip Realty, I was the CFO and then ultimately president, which we talk about. But we were amongst the first, perhaps the first, to put complete MLS listings online. Uh-huh. And that was somewhat controversial. It was right around the year 2000, 2001. And it wasn't very popular with a lot of folks. Uh, broker wanted, side, not the, on the broker side. Yeah, NAR course. didn't love it. The idea was you needed to be physically with a person and show them a listing. Or, or point to the listing on the computer as opposed to providing a link and viewing it online. It seems crazy now because, you know, with Zillow and everything, it seems like the information's always been out there. But, you know, 25 years ago, it was not. You had to set up a, a, a unique structure, a virtual office website to do it. And we got, we, we, we won. We, you know, we, we fought with the NAR at that time and the DOJ stepped in and opened up the feeds. And that was the beginning of, of really online real estate as we know it. Um, I like to think of that, those early days, it was, it was quite pioneering using the, the internet to unlock information in this asset class. It has yet to drive down commissions, at least not in a meaningful way. Uh-huh. It has served to make uh, the shopping experience much more delightful for people and, and easier in many ways for agents because now you could you manage lots of clients a lot more efficiently. So there have been some, some advantages but we haven't seen a lot of fee compression, at least not yet. Yeah, I think we, we will, but it's all understandable. Yep. And so, so many questions here. One is when you started this business, there was not a property management. So it was an end-to-end solution, but without property management. Right. And one of my prior guests was one of your prior partners, Doug Wheel from Mind, which was property management for the mom and pops out there. At least that was their original intention. Right, exactly. So uh, is Doug Bryan and Colin Wheel. Colin um, Wheel, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Founded Mind. Put two people yeah, put together. Them together. They've been partners for a long time. They started Mind, which is a tech-focused um, property management company, 
excellent operators. They also do some of the things that we do uh, working with investors, but they're principally a property manager. We are principally an, in, you know, an investment and transactional platform that also does property management. So yeah. they, they kind of skew more on the PM side. But, but what we did previously was we would pair our investors with property managers we had vetted. Mm -hmm. So we had over 70 property managers who we'd certified, and we would allow investors to select the property manager they would like. And we, we monitored the, the, the um, post-purchase behavior, but, but we really didn't have a lot of influence or mm -hmm. connectivity uh, beyond that. So that's where we decided, hey, we really need to be in this business. We want to see the actual performance of these homes. Right. We want to be able to, you know, to um, if there's issues, understand what the issues are improve our underwriting, um, help people in the future when they want to either buy more homes or sell them. Uh -huh. And then the data feeds our, our, our database. And we have, we have built what I think is perhaps the most comprehensive database in, in our sector, which we call the rental genome, where we've mapped all roughly 100 million homes in the country. We have all the basic information on them, including ownership data, whether it's a rental home or not, what the rent is or what the rent should be, what the neighborhoods are like, and so how to contact these owners. So we have this really rich dynamic database that is constantly being updated and it powers our business. And so the property management information really helps. Mm -hmm. All the listings information really helps. Transactional information really helps. And all, you know, all this stuff that we get goes into this, this database. And, and that, that really helps us really determine value very accurately and when how values are trending in different areas and things like that, which is an important part of being an investment-oriented oriented platform. Yeah, of course. And we're going to talk about some of the controversies in this business towards the end of the conversation, but one of them is inconsistency of property management mm -hmm. or what I love to call horror stories, because there's always a horror story. <laughs> sure. Maybe an outlier is a better word. Yeah. But if you're managing yourself, you have control over the outlier properties where property management, where things aren't going so well. Yeah. Probably never happens, but it probably <laughs> does. There are always outliers, right? And you do, do the best you can. And I think the key is to try to not make the same mistakes over and over again. Mm -hmm. A lot of it comes down to communications and the, the, the typical problems with property management is when somebody can't get hold of someone and mm -hmm. there's an issue. And interestingly, some of the new technologies like AI can help with that. You know, you, you can, you could get things answered immediately. You can get your service order request routed to the right, the right person very quickly. So that's one of the things we talk a lot about the negatives of AI, but, um, the beauty of AI is it actually, in, in the property management space, could improve customer yeah. service and reduce costs for uh, the manager or the owner because you don't have to pay the AI bot, right? So, right. And that allows you to continue to drive down costs or, or make better margins, but provide better service. I would assume that some of the mistakes on those outlier properties is in the buy or the lack of renovation from the buy, or the tenant selection yep. versus operation. I'm just guessing that's it, a, a you, consistent you thing. hit the nail on the head. If, if you buy the right homes, renovate them to the right standard, and find the right resident who's qualified to be in the home, who has the right income and characteristics to be in the home, you get those things right, there tend to not be 
a lot of issues. If you somehow times inherit a portfolio that has not been properly renovated, or it might be from a mom and pop landlord who didn't properly vet a resident and that that person's got issues with payments, things like that, that that's where some of the issues do come. But you can't you can't control for all of those things. But if you do do those things right up front, and mm-hmm. the renovation, as you point out, is really critical because you if if you can go in and really upgrade, kind of harden the asset, you know, put in the right surfaces, the the right appliances, HVAC system, make sure the roof's in good working order. If not, replace it. You do all those things up front. There's not a lot that goes wrong generally with mm-hmm. these with these homes, and when the and when things do happen, which inevitably they do. You know, sometimes it's, you know, the kid flushed a teddy bear down the toilet and it overflows and, you know, right. they're still upset. It's, it's actually, in that case, the resident's fault. The, the landlord or the, the manager does what they can to remedy it. But oftentimes there's culpability when it, it comes there. But I think it's really incumbent upon landlords and managers to take ownership of the issues when it is not the resident's fault mm-hmm. and, and own it and make it right. Yeah. So I want to go back to something you said. I want to talk about that. But one of the things you said is when you started in this business, you started buying a few homes and it was probably dirt right before the GFC. Is that or beginning? It was during, during the GFC. Okay. So you buy a couple homes. Yeah. In your mind, are you making an investment in a couple of homes? Are you a trader? Because then your next word was the word platform, one yeah. of my very favorite words. When did it move from, I'm going to buy some homes and probably make a good, safe investment mm-hmm. or, and maybe a really good investment? To, oh, I'm building a business and a platform. Yeah. So the early days, you know, so we talked about Doug and Colin, my partners at Waypoint. Right. They were they were the ones who really started buying the homes and then brought me in. I believe I was their first investor. Okay. And then went on their advisory board. And we did that for a while together before I left to join in 2011 as their third partner. Early days, it was an investment, knowing that the homes we were buying, it, perfect example, they were... $400,000 homes at the peak. Uh, we were buying for $125,000. We were putting $25,000 in. We were all in it for $150,000. And it used to be $400,000. We're renting them out for, say, a 10% net yield. Right. So the numbers are No-brainer. crazy to think about. So what we said was, even if the homes do not go up in value for many, many years, we're clipping mm-hmm. a really high coupon. Right. It's hard to imagine them going any, getting any cheaper just based on a yield basis. Someone should want to own them even though it wasn't obvious you could manage them at scale and generate these kind of yields. But we felt like we could do that. And then eventually it was a bet on California real estate coming back, which we felt really good about. So we knew it was a good trade. Yep. And we thought if we got big enough, we could potentially create a platform. So to me, it was the best type of, of risk risk because our downside was we just made a good real estate investment. And uh-huh. I didn't think there was any chance it was really a bad one, in, in right. realistically. And the upside case there was we learned enough and we built enough technology and got enough experience to build a platform that we could then monetize. And when did the concept of platform for you and for the others who were doing this around the country who started to build companies yeah. move that platform from this could be an efficient way to make the conveyor belt work to, oh, we could efficiently operate these. It's a business platform. Yeah. This is an ongoing business. Say late 2011, uh, which is when I joined these guys, we simultaneously raised $200 million of equity from mm-hmm. a, a wonderful uh, private equity firm called GI Partners. They put in $200 million. 
Uh-huh. And at that time, we were just approaching a thousand houses. We were the yeah. first to get to a thousand houses in the country, believe yeah. it or not. And they they bought into the management company as well as giving us money. They gave us some. They invested in the manager because they wanted us to build out the platform. And they thought it, we would need it, which we did, to hire the team and build out the technology to do this at scale, uh-huh. which we did. And we were at that time. It was pretty clear to us there was a platform opportunity, and we then said, "Okay, how do we get from a thousand to ten thousand houses yeah. to twenty thousand houses?" But we had done it long enough when we'd made enough mistakes and learned from those mistakes operationally to know that you could build software that it's really workflow management. And so for on the, both on the underwriting and acquisition side, the renovation side, the property management side, all of these things could be made much more efficient right. by software. And, and Colin, who was you know, one of our you know, the founding partners at Waypoint, had a software engineer background, as you know. So right. um, he really focused on the tech side. Doug brought a lot of real estate operating experience, and I brought a lot of the private equity and investing and finance expertise. And we together, we had the pieces that we needed to really build out the platform. And when did, the, when did you know that you might reach the efficiencies of the apartment business, if that's the parallel to it? I'm asking the same question multiple times because I just find it so interesting. Yeah. That you said, oh, it's a platform, again, not for a conveyor belt, but a platform for an ongoing asset class that we will hold these because the trade isn't what matters anymore. Yeah. We felt like in 2012, Uh I remember being at a couple of investor conferences in early to mid-2012 where we laid out the unit economics of a single-family rental home against an apartment Uh unit. And showed why we believed, based on our limited experience of uh-huh. doing a few hundred of these, right. you know, call it a thousand, that we felt we could deliver these results at scale that are comparable to multifamily, and no one believed it. Mm-hmm. You know, sixty-five to seventy percent NOI margins, and the the reason is people tend to stay longer. Your biggest cost in apartments is turnover. Right. And, and, and oftentimes it's a 12 to 18 month average stay. So your turnover is yep. pretty high. So you have vacancy, you have CapEx associated with it, yep. you have marketing costs. The single family rental home, our early experience was people stayed right. three years on average. Now it's close to four years in a lot of the public companies. So call it 25% annualized turnover versus, you know, maybe it's 100% or 75%. Mm-hmm. And yes, it would cost more at the turn but it was much less frequent. Mm-hmm. And so that was a positive. You also don't have common area costs in a single family rental home. The utilities mm-hmm. are paid by the resident. Lawn care is paid by the resident. You buy an apartment, you know, a class A apartment building, you've got pools and fitness centers and right. common area amenities. A lot of costs there you have to amortize. And that's another thing that when you, when you fully load it in and you're really honest about the margins, it, it really offset a decent amount of the margin there. So so it was comparable. So that's when we felt like uh, we had the unit economics dialed in. We just needed to scale it and we needed to figure out how to raise enough capital to make it a perpetual vehicle as opposed to going out. I think we raised 10 small funds, but each time we would have to, we get halfway through the fund, we'd have to start fundraising again while right. we're deploying. And so the only way to really get the, solve that was to, was to go public. Yep. 
So talk through, and we'll go through this quickly because there's other things to talk about. What happened to your company as it merged into others that merged into others that merged into others? But tell that story if you would. Yeah. So we went public, let's see, it was, it was February 3rd of 2014. So it was almost 10 years, 10 years ago, ago today wow. when we went public. And so we operated as a, as, as a public company and we started with a billion dollars of assets that our partners from Starwood Capital spun out of their mortgage REIT. And we were the management team to run it. Um, I stayed for about 15 months or so. And then, and Doug Bryan and I were co-CEOs of that business. Right. I left to start Roofstock in, call it April of 2015. Uh-huh. And Doug stayed on to, to be CEO of the REIT. And so subsequent to my leaving, Doug and the team merged Starwood Waypoint with Colony American Homes, yep. which was another uh, single family rental REIT. They merged that together. And then subsequent to that, it was called Colony Starwood, merged into Invitation Homes. And so mm-hmm. now all of my prior company and Colony is all part of, of, of IH. Uh-huh. And just again, one more time, thinking back through that point in time, others were creating platforms, others realizing this is going to be a stable, perpetual vehicle for ownership that made sense in the panoply of real estate investment. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's, what's funny is these real estate asset classes that emerge, things like self-storage, right. data centers, some, some of these, they start off, they feel like little niches. And then the thing about real estate is a niche in real estate tends to be generally quite large. Yeah. And single family rentals is, you know, call it a, a four or $5 trillion sector. If you look at all the rental homes in the United States, uh-huh. now the institutional portion of it's quite small. It's maybe mm-hmm. 600,000 homes out of 20 million that are rented. But yeah, once it gets proven out and once institutional capital discovers an asset class, it's like toothpaste. Uh-huh. It doesn't go back in the tube. It just, it continues to institutionalize. And that's what's happened with single family rentals. So I mentioned we were the first to get to a thousand homes. And then by the end of the first quarter of 2012, uh-huh. you had a couple players that were like, in, it was Invitation Homes and American Homes for Rent. Yep. They were buying a thousand homes a week. Right. That, that's how much it, that's when it changed. But interestingly, it's also when the housing market bottomed and started. And if you look at any housing chart, home prices went down for five years in a row. And in, in the first quarter of 2012, they started going up. Mm-hmm. And that's, that began that amazing run that we've been in on home price growth. And it was really, I would argue, you could say all you want about institutional capital and what's good about it, what's bad about it. It saved the housing market at that point mm-hmm. in time because no one was buying these homes. No one wanted to catch a falling knife and buy these homes that needed a bunch of capital. So that capital kind of came in and, and converted a lot of these, these properties to rentals. And, and now a lot of them are going back into the owner-occupied stock as well. Uh-huh. If I think back to that time, and I think back to all of the mortgage foreclosures, institutional real estate wasn't buying everything, buying something everywhere. There might be places that they weren't buying or types of properties mm-hmm. that were below the quality that would work for an investor or in markets that didn't work. Yep, correct. Each investor tended to have, by design, a buy box, uh-huh. certain vintage of homes, looking for certain characteristics, maybe 
Some people wouldn't buy below three bedrooms. Maybe somebody wouldn't buy a home before 2000 yep. vintage. Maybe some preferred more infill locations. Maybe some preferred more suburban locations. So everyone has you know, certain price points, yield requirements. So not everything was scooped up for sure. Uh-huh. Um, but there was an awful lot of mom and pop investing to the vast majority of investment homes are owned by mom and pop investors. You know, it's just 3% are owned by the big institutions. So there was a, it was a, if you think about historically, about 20% of all homes have gone to investors, roughly, and the vast majority of those go to small investors. I want to save this for the end, but I'll ask you the question now. One of the controversies about this business is that it's crowding out sm- both homeowners and first-time homebuyers, and it's crowding out mom and pop investors. And the 3% is against a national average, yep. not against one of those neighborhoods where everyone who's an investor might want to be. Yep. Any sense of what that dynamic is in the hot neighborhoods for you and the rest of the sector? Yeah, it's a little bit like... Um... You mentioned the sort of outlier, you know, sometimes there is a, there's a problem at a home and it's a bad problem and right. there, there's a problem with that home. I think there are certainly, there have been sub-markets, not so much now because the, the institutional investors are largely on the sidelines today and really not buying much, if anything. But say the back half of 2021, when mm-hmm. things were blowing and going, there are definitely examples where investors were competing with homeowners, and but there'd be... There'd be 25 bids on a home and the high bidder is going to win. But one thing about investors is they're yield oriented. So there's a max price they won't go above. And so the high bidder in most occasions is the homeowner because they will bid more than an investor because there's an emotional attachment to that home. So it's still, um, when when you look at the data, yes, there are examples where there's a lot of investor buying in places like Atlanta and certain submarkets and things right. like that. When you look nationally, it hasn't really been an issue. And there are, I think, also some benefits that we can talk about if we have time later that I think often go um, undiscussed mm-hmm. about what the institutional owners actually do do uh, for neighborhoods and for renters, which we can talk about. Yeah. Um, I just, I, I like there's a, a negative narrative out there and it's not all wrong, uh, but it's not all right either. And so I, I think having an honest discussion about it yep. is important because I know all of the CEOs of the major REITs and private funds and they're good people and they want to do the right thing involved in the National Rental Home, Rental Home Council takes, you know, takes these issues very seriously and, you know, want to deliver a good product for, and want to create quality, affordable housing yeah. for people. Let, let's yeah. stick with this for a little while. So let's, let's have that conversation. Right. A, a couple of points. One is due to a prior podcast, I got on a mailing list of angry renters in an SFR company. And it was just random that they put me on that list. And it was like, hey, the roof's falling down. You know, rats and roofs and mold and all that kind of stuff. And which they probably weren't making up, but I heard... And then at the same time, there were some brutal articles in the paper, both about the neighborhoods that were a high percentage of investor purchasers, as well as the horror story, maybe outliers. Yeah. And then that's point A. Point B is we do, I do a lot in the apartment business, and apartment owners are generally responsible, long-term citizens 
of and stewards of their properties. Mm-hmm. But the national narrative always goes against the same thing in the apartment business where the, the roof is falling down. It's the slumlords. Yeah. Yeah. So how do we deal with that as an industry? Because I agree there are some real benefits. Both people can't get houses otherwise. But talk about that. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a fair amount to unpack there. But yeah. I, I think <laughs> if, you, if you think about um, these large companies that are well-funded, they have brand standards. So it's, it's kind of like if you're going to rent one of those homes, you know what you're getting. Like you're staying in a branded hotel versus right. an independent hotel. They have brands to protect. If there's bad things happening, the roof's falling down, that you, you don't pass the inspections and, and, you know, this stuff should get fixed very, yep. very quickly. That same house, if it was owned by you or me, may or may not get fixed because I, I as the landlord or you as the landlord may or may not have the money to do it. Good luck. Sorry. Find mm-hmm. another place to live or whatever. That's oftentimes what happens. So. You, a check in the column of the institutional landlord is they're well capitalized. They fix stuff. Yeah. It doesn't cost you as the renter to, to fix it. It gets, and they should be responsive and they've gotten better and better over time. No one's perfect. They continue to get better in, in, in fixing those things. Let me add to that check, which is if I'm a mom and pop landlord and I have the dough to replace the refrigerator, it's still going to, A, I'm going to pay more than you are. Right. And B, it might take me a week or two to get that refrigerator together, but it's going to take you a day because you have the size and scale. That, to that's do that. exactly right. The, the renovations you can save. You know, it, it might cost half as much at institutional scale versus you or yep. I doing it as an individual for a lot of these things. So, so that scale does bring economies. The larger players follow fair housing laws. They have to. It's the law. Not all mom and pops even know what fair housing laws are. Mm-hmm. And so, there's a certain element of discrimination that happens in you know in the in in the sector. It might even be un, unwittingly done, but it's, it's part of all the training and the, all the institutional landlords are all over it, got to follow fair housing laws. So that's another good thing. Um, things, I mentioned things get fixed when they're broken. You get your security deposit back. The home's in good shape. When you leave, that doesn't always happen. Everyone's got those horror stories where the, right. the landlord, landlord says, you know, so sue me, you know, go pound sand. I'm keeping your security deposit. Then people tend to just move on. So those are the things that, I think as, again, it, it's an alternative for people. It's never going to be the vet, the majority of rental homes. It's 3% today. Maybe it gets to 5 or 10% over a long period of time. It's an alternative. And I think some people will prefer it because they'll know what they're getting and they're a s- certain quality and they, they can rely on a certain level of operational stability. Some people will say, you know what, I, want, um, I love this house. I'm going to take a chance on this mom and pop owner or whatever. It's cheaper. Mm-hmm. I'm taking a little bit of risk, but I love the home. And that's great. And th- th- you know, that's the, f- the free market sort of in action. It's fascinating that the amount of attention on the SFR business and the apartment business with rent control, and there's a new bill out there to like outlaw institutional ownership of single family homes yep. a couple of weeks ago. It's caught the, the national attention. I read the New York Times too I much. I don't know if you've noticed, it's an election year. Ah, yes, I have noticed. That. Yes, and not saying it's all blustering because it's not, but but there's things tend to happen around election years, and it's a good talking point for politicians. But what I, what I can tell you is, many of them are more reasonable behind closed doors than they might appear with sound bites. Uh-huh. And I think when you really can sit down and have an honest conversation with folks on both sides, and you can really lay out the arguments. There's a lot more reasonableness, I think, 
to the conversation when you understand that what the industry is trying to do uh-huh. is not supplant homeownership. It's, it's really to, to allow another choice for yeah. people to rent a professionally managed or a new built home that could be a rental. And it is, this is another thing that people don't, I think, give rentals credit for. It really provides upward mobility for families into better neighborhoods. And a lot of people renting homes in better neighborhoods get their kids into a better school district. Whether you buy that home or rent it, you're going to that school that gets you on a different different path. And so there's been a lot of research around that that's really powerful. And then maybe you buy a home after that, maybe you continue to rent, but you do get on a different path. And mm-hmm. ultimately, I think a lot of these families will buy. It's just with interest rates at 7% and like certainly today, very, very difficult. Really We're hard. at all-time lack of affordability for buying, but you can still live in that same home, enjoy all the benefits of that home, except the mortgage, we like to say. That's a good thing. And talk about better, we'll go stick with this a little bit longer. Talk about better neighborhoods and do better neighborhoods change with, say, 30% rental homes in that neighborhood where traditionally that might have been a 5% in that neighborhood. Yeah. And then also think, with BTR, that will change it because it's purpose-built yeah. neighborhood for this. So it, people, it, it's funny, uh, oftentimes don't like renters in their neighborhood because they think the renters aren't going to take care of the property and it's going to bring down property values. This is another check in the column of the institutional landlords. Mm -hmm. You go into a lot of these neighborhoods, the the rental homes that are owned by the big institutions will be some of the best looking homes on the block Mm -hmm. because they have standards that are, they're taking care of it. So you, it's to me, you're driving down the street and you don't know which car is leased or which is owned. I think a lot of, in a lot of these neighborhoods, it's, it's the same. And should it matter? Mm-hmm. Someone could afford to buy a home. Maybe they're choosing to rent. Uh, someone could afford to buy. And you'd be surprised. Uh, uh, you know, the, uh, when we survey residents, a lot of times they're moving to a new neighborhood. They don't know where to buy. So I'm going to rent for a couple of years and save up some money. And then I'm going to buy something. Not everybody wants to jump in. It gives that flexibility. Yeah. Let me ask a hard question because I'm curious about this. Americans are scared of each other. Mm-hmm. And Americans are scared of renters because they're often different than white, middle-class, blue-collar Americans, whatever that whole narrative is. Mm -hmm. And is this diversifying neighborhoods? I think it is. I think it is. I think when you think about this idea that is creating upward mobility for families, a lot of those families can can be people of color. Yeah. And so while people say we're trying to protect our property values, you know, because we don't like renters... I don't want to paint it with a broad brush, but but I just think in general, people oftentimes don't like change. Yeah. And they're just comfortable with the way things are. And, you know, I know all my neighbors, I'd prefer them to stay. And I don't want to see my neighborhood change. But what we have seen is with with some homes becoming rental homes in these neighborhoods, we haven't seen their neighborhoods changing for the worst, for sure. But they, yeah, they could be a little bit more diverse. Mm-hmm. It- it's interesting to unpack these subjects all together because when you look at, when you get another thousand feet up, it takes a different complexion to the discussion. And, and quite honestly, that, that's one of the, as we talk to some of the, the lawmakers, we talk right. about some of the positives of, of increased rentership. Right. It does open up some neighborhoods and creates some opportunities for, for upward mobility. It's not always skipping all that and just buying something because for many people, that's just, it's a bridge too far. Yeah. 
Makes total sense. I want to totally change the subject, okay. and we're going to go backwards to the second part of your career. And the story I want to hear is Santa Fe, and something happened in Santa Fe that was an incubator in a really interesting way. So tell me, and this has been discussed once before in our podcast, and for our younger listeners who don't know what the story is, I'd like you to tell that story. Okay. Well, first of all, right out of college, my first job before business school was with a company called LaSalle Partners. It was a real, corporate real estate services firm, blue chip firm, great place to learn. I was a financial analyst there. Wonderful people, learned a lot. The founder of that company is a fellow named Bill Sanders. Mm -hmm. He sold uh, that company, the majority of it, to a Japanese insurance company called Daiichi and moved to Santa Fe. And he was going to retire, bought a 500,000 acre ranch and was bored out of his mind and couldn't, couldn't help himself. So he started a company called Security Capital Group there in Santa Fe. I was at Stanford Business School in the early 90s, and I invited him to come out and speak to the school. I thought it would be cool for people to hear his story. And he was doing a lot of interesting work around real estate investment trusts, REITs, which you know, around that time in the early 90s is when you know, there's some REIT law changes and the, the REIT market really started to explode. Uh -huh. and, and Bill, so he came, spoke, we went out to dinner. He said, hey, why don't you come work for me? Uh, I need some you know, someone like you who could help me, you know, get some things off the ground and, and figure out how to recruit a whole bunch of other MBAs and then figure out how to launch some of these companies. And so I did. And it was basically, it was an incubator for, it was a private real estate incubator. And we formed several companies that became, and still are around, you know, with Prologis was a company that, that we started, predecessor company to Archstone. And so these were Really, there was an, another one that was in the extended stay area called Homestead Village. So we, we kind of incubated these things and then, and then took them public. And I had a ringside view of a lot of this. I was right out of business school and, mm -hmm. you know, I was basically carrying Bill's briefcase. But you were his him. chief of staff. Yeah. Okay. I love that term because I never know what it means. Yeah. It, it's different in, a, in every yes. company. So it basically means um, I would, I would hang out with him. I would sit in all the meetings. I would do all the follow-ups. I would travel with him. I'd help put business plant pitches together. Back then doing actual slides where you uh -huh. have to work with the art department and I'd carry the slides and make sure that right. they were right. But it was fascinating. He's a you know, fascinating guy, amazing strategist and fundraiser and really real estate visionary. So I, from a personal career standpoint, it was one of the smartest things I ever did because I turned down offers that were more than twice the money to go work for him, trying to play the long game. And, and I got, because he, he actually told me, he goes, Beasley, I shouldn't even be paying you. This is, you should be paying me for what you're, you're going to learn here. So it was actually kind of true. Yeah. And it was in Santa Fe. So I want to paint, you want to paint the picture of incubating these companies in the worst part of the SNL crisis. I was at the RTC. So I was at the other end of the country in the bowels of the well, that's I didn't realize that because you know my next job was at KSL when we bought all the RTC properties. Yeah, like, but um, but Santa Fe was a fascinating place. He liked it there because there were no distractions. Right. He loved he, his ranch, but we had an office in downtown Santa Fe, and we wore ties, suit and tie every day, and it was also the the seat of the government. So the only other people there wearing ties worked for the government. <laughs> or maybe an occasional auditor that was coming in. But so we were all over Santa Fe in our ties and um, 
and he hired an incredible group of people and the alumni network of security capital is is really yeah really strong went on to be the ceos of prologis that then merged into amb to become prologis yeah. and archstone and mm -hmm. yeah a lot of great people scott sellers connie moore so Pat what, what did you take from that when you left there because you you weren't in any of the verticals you were investing and making those verticals happen. Yeah. I, Talk about the difference between those two things. Yeah. So um, it was interesting. So I spent the first roughly year there working for Bill on strategy and kind of getting these set up. And then uh, he threw me into an operating role. So I was actually doing development projects for, for the REIT, uh -huh. Which that, REIT that ultimately became Archstone. Okay. It was Security Capital Pacific. Yep. Um, and so I got assigned a couple markets. Um, the one that I was most active in was Salt Lake City. And I actually was learning the craft of development and mm -hmm. going out and tying up sites, hiring architects, actually doing that work. As Bill was a believer that this was really going to be a management development program where you could rotate around into several areas uh -huh. of the firm and then ultimately figure out where you liked and where they liked you and you could you know, stay there. And mm -hmm. so that's what, so I was in the process of, of doing that when I got a call about this really interesting role at KSL Resorts that pushed a lot of my buttons where, it, you know, you mentioned the RTC, they had just got La Quinta and PGA West for pennies on the dollar and were developing that out. It just bought Doral in Miami and really wanted to build a company and take advantage of these these storied assets they, that they bought at such a song and really brought me in to help on the business development front help figure things out, help develop out the real estate, help figure out things. And again, I kind of took a little bit of a flyer because it wasn't the most defined position. And, and going in, they didn't have an, an equity program that I could participate in, but they said, listen, if this works out, you, you know, it'll work out. We'll, we'll figure out how to, how, to, how to do that. And so I sort of did it on the come a little bit, but I trusted them. And you know, they had, their money came from KKR, so mm -hmm. it was really well-funded. And it was a wonderful experience. I was there for almost seven years. So let me contrast the second job you had with Bill Sanders, which was real estate project manager, which I think of as heads down, detail, juggling massive amounts of stuff, learning the trade. And then you went to do this, which feels like a better fit. I'm a headhunter, yeah. so I think about this all the time. Yeah. But what, what did that mean? What was the essence of your job at, at KSL? And then what did you do to these storied hotels? Yeah. So um, what, I, what I ended up gravitating toward pretty quickly at KSL was acquisitions and because they wanted to grow the platform. So I did some business development work at the existing properties, you know, doing co-branded restaurants with, with celebrity chefs or working on building out some condo hotel units or doing some things like that, doing that. But then we started getting an appetite to buy more resorts. And because I sort of was there long enough to learn because we were owner operators, kind of how things worked. And um, so then um, I was sort of put on the acquisitions team, went out and they let me go buy a couple of hotels mm -hmm. and, and figure it out. And I found I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that whole process. And, but the fact that I could get in the weeds as well. So so doing the sort of operating role for that period of time was it demonstrated to these guys that I could not only do the kind of strategy and financial stuff, mm -hmm. but I could actually get in the weeds and do things that I enjoy that. Um, 
gave me uh, an ability to kind of go up and then go down because in underwriting these resorts, you have to, it's both. You have to kind of understand the high level financials, but then you sort of need to dig in into all the staffing models and figure out, you know, right. how to turn these things around because everything we bought was a turnaround. But buying resorts, buying a business, unlike buying a it's, hotel, which is, you know, like a, a days in is a, is a piece of real estate. Yeah. So these are really complicated. A lot in some of these, the food and beverage, the, the, the food and beverage and other spend is higher than the rooms rate. Mm -hmm. And so all those other ancillary businesses. And then oftentimes we always used to say, how do we make our real estate work harder? There's always real estate that you could unlock, right? whether it's building additional units, building a spa. When we bought the Claremont hotel, the best, some of the best space in the Claremont was being used for executive offices. So we turned that into what's now the spa. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's, it's how do you look at these things through a fresh lens? Right. You have to have a business thesis, which is what we're talking about through the whole conversation. So yep. buying a resort is that, and you could play both sides of that. Totally. So how did that turn into Zip Realty? What was Zip Realty when you joined and it, and, in, in its context at that point in time? Yeah. So uh, I did the KSL thing for six plus years. Um, 9-11 happened. And so when yeah. you think about the resort industry was pretty clear to me was not going to be doing much for, we certainly weren't going to be doing any acquisitions for a while. We, it was very uncertain. And I just had twins and my wife and I wanted to move to someplace where we could raise them. And we didn't really want to raise them in, in the desert. We're, we're, it's a wonderful place to live, but it just didn't feel like we're, we're where we were you? Raise, we were in La Quinta, okay. Palm Desert. Uh -huh. So in the you know, near Palm Springs. So we, my wife's family's from the Bay Area, lives in the Bay Area, did and still does. So um, we decided we wanted to try to get back there. I had an opportunity to to be CFO of Zip Realty. I thought it was an interesting personal challenge because I thought I had the skills to be a good CFO, but I'd never been one. The The fellow who hired me, Eric Danziger, was the CEO. Um, he He used to run Wyndham. He was the early CEO of Starwood Hotels. So he's a hospitality guy. I knew him from the industry because we were trying to negotiate when I was at KSL, the purchase of a brand from a, a company he was at. So we knew each other and he reached out to me and said, Hey, I'm looking for a CFO. I think you would be perfect. I need to, I need to figure out how to fix our business model, tell the story, raise money. <laughs> and I think you can do that as well as anybody. And, and I said, you caught me at a good time because I'm really, I'm at a point where I think we want to move back to the Bay area. They were based here in, <laughs> in Emeryville. So, so really took a flyer um, on it. It was an interesting time to build a company, an internet-based company, because the internet bubble had exploded. There were tons of talent. Mm. There was, um, so we were able to hire good people. And it was an opportunity to apply technology to this sector, which residential real estate, really inefficient, very high fees it felt like there was a way we could crack that code. And we did get in there and fix the business model and raised a couple rounds of, of uh, venture capital and grew the company from when, really when I got there, we had 40 people. And when we went public, which was, so I got there in 2001 and we went public in 2004, we had 1800 people. Mm -hmm. So um, we, we scaled it. Now, the vast majority of those were agents and they were employees of the firm. So it was a different model. We hired, we were hiring 75 to 100 agents a month at, during our growth period. We, we had really figured out the unit economics and we were giving agents 
50, 50 to 100 leads. We had a lead incubation suite. So a lot of the stuff that everyone's doing now, we, we sort of pioneered. And so, yeah, we had a successful IPO in, in 2004, and I stuck around for a couple more years and ended up, you know, I'd been, it had been a really nice run there. And, and I left in 2007 to take a little break uh-huh. with the idea of taking a year and, off. And so during the time that you were there and what it was, was it real estate brokerage with agents, but tech driven. Yes. And that was the innovation. Yeah. The, the innovation was um, up until then, um, no one was, was using technology to empower agents or consumers. So for us, it was the, the, um, we looked at really opening up the information for consumers so they could see every listing. And we actually shared a piece of the, our buy side commission with consumers. So mm-hmm. if we got a $10,000 commission on the buy side, we would share, call a third of it, with, with the buyer customer. Mm-hmm. Um, so we actually, our joke was we sort of paid our customers to use us, so why wouldn't they? You use any other agent, you get nothing. Right. Um, it's all paid by the seller. So anyway, so that was our model. And on the agent side, we would deliver them quality leads that we acquired online, and we had tools to incubate them. And we had a, you know early CRM system and all those kinds of things, so they could our best agents were doing you know ten deals a month. And these were buy agents, not sell agents. It was it was mostly buy side because we were such a new brand, mm-hmm. and the traditional agents all wanted the listings. Mm-hmm. And so where we saw the white space was buy side representation because um, we were they were already paying these fat fees for the buy side, so right. we could just do that. And so probably eighty percent of our business was buy side. Over time, we started doing more and more listings as we got more of a brand out there. And what we would do was pay a full cooperating broker fee. So let's say it's two and a half percent in a market. Mm-hmm. And then we would charge a point and a half. So we would keep a lower split. And so, so to the seller, it would only be, say, 4% instead of five and a half or six. Uh-huh. But what we found is, interestingly, if we didn't offer the full cooperating broker commission, the, the properties didn't get as much interest. So this is, you know, much controversy now. It's, you have this, this weird dynamic where if an agent is going to show someone a home and on one, they're getting a much smaller commission than the other, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, there may be a bias towards pushing the person to where they're going to make more money. I know that might be a jaded perspective. It's a true perspective. Um, but how, how, how can it not be true? Right. The last home that we sold, we tried to get the broker to reduce the commission, which we thought would help everybody. And he said, you don't want to pay me less because I'll pay the other guy less and the other guy won't sell it. And that will like make you crap in the marketplace. It, it has been the case for a, a long time and no one's really wanted to touch um, certainly the cooperating broker commission. Right. Any kind of last statements about Zip Realty and when you left, what did it become? Where is that business? What happened? What was the end game for it that was, business? It was a fantastic experience. And, you know, taking a company public as a CFO was yeah. a great life experience. And, yeah. and so, you know, it's funny at the time, I remember thinking, gosh, it feels like I'm doing all the work and the CEO is getting all the economics. That's just the way it seems to work, right? I mean, all the drafting sessions and, you know, I don't know what he's doing. So the funny thing is, and I, I told myself, if I ever do another IPO, I want to be CEO, not CFO. So fast forward to, to Starwood Waypoint, where I was CEO, 
Of course, I realize that's why you get all the economics. It's really hard. You're the person, right? This, this, you know, so delivering the, there's a difference between telling, being the person to, to craft and tell the story and be responsible for delivering the results versus talking about them. Right. That's the difference. And, and so I, I fully appreciated it then. But, but I would say that the ZipRealty experience was, was really a wonderful one in many respects. And I worked with some great people and it, it kind of opened my eyes to, the power of a tech tech enabled mm. model to transform a transactional uh, real estate sector, which kind of I, I leveraged when we got into the you know rootstock. So then you go from there to Waypoint, and at Waypoint you buy one off properties. It's a nice thing to do, but then it becomes a platform. Yeah. How much of the platform then, and then now we're going to go to rootstock as well, is you know technology can make stuff happen. So yeah. think about platform and technology together as interchangeable. Yeah. Well, first of all, I did a couple things in between that, that also were, were kind of instructive for me. So I had a little stint in the solar space. So I, you know, I was doing utility scale solar, which had a lot of real estate elements to it. And so I, I thought that was fascinating. I'm still fascinated by the alternative energy business. And I went back into the hospitality sector and I was working for John Pritzker and his family yes. office. And I got experience there running Joie de Vivre Hotels, which is a hospitality play, boutique hotels. And again, there's elements of hospitality in what we're doing here in the single family rental space. So I think what's interesting is you take little bits and pieces of different things you've done in your career and apply and it kind of all incubates in there and you apply it to what you're doing. And so I still think about some of those lessons, you're building a management company at Joie de Vivre, which is what we were. It was Chip gone. Chip's been on the podcast. Did, this is after he left. Chip, we bought the company from Chip. Right. And okay. so Chip was the CEO. When I got there, it was actually right before closing, Chip came to me, Chip and John Pritzker came to me and said, hey, we want you to be interim CEO. And so I took Chip's job for a year. Okay. And Chip and John became co-chairman. And so not easy shoes to fill. Chip's right. an amazing leader, a brilliant guy, terrific guy, created that company out of whole cloth. So I, I stepped in to his shoes and the, the idea was to figure out how to really combine Joie de Vivre with another company. And, and really, we wanted to build a larger platform. We merged with Thompson Hotels and they've since merged and it's all part of Hyatt now. Mm -hmm. um, but it was a great, great outcome for everybody. But but again, just an interesting life experience. But when I was there with working for John, Doug and Colin, I encouraged them to come in and pitch the single family rental opportunity to John. And so they came in and I said, John, I'm an investor with these guys. I know them. They're great. I think this is an amazing opportunity. This was 2011. If you can put in X dollars, you can be the, the first LP in the fund. Uh, they'll give you a piece of the manager, blah, blah, blah. And you could seed it. And he said, seems like a moneymaker. I like hotels. <laughs> yeah. This wasn't for him. Right. It, you know, he's like, I get it. Um, I really want to focus on hospitality. I get it. And so after that, I just decided it would make the most sense for my career because this was a, I don't want to say a once in the lifetime opportunity, but it's, you might see these things a couple times in your career where it's very, it was very clear to me, uh -huh. the investment opportunity was was massive. And sometimes you have to vote with your feet. And so I left what was a very comfortable role there with awesome people to, to take a flyer on this single family. Flyer. 
So let me mash up some different words now that we've spoken, because I'm going to mash up real estate, technology, business platform operations, and then also hospitality, Mm -hmm. because that's another key ingredient to how you might view the world. Correct. Okay. So, and you're CEO, so now you have that chair to do the things that you want to do. Talk about how this business has evolved from when you started, mostly as that transactor platform into a full stack platform. Yeah. So um, the hard thing with marketplaces, which is what we were when we started, we were clearly a marketplace. You have to match supply and demand. And usually it's this cold start problem. So Mm -hmm. I knew when I left, started Waypoint, that I could go to the CEOs and have them give me some inventory Uh and I could post it and see if I could sell it because it wouldn't cost them anything. And so I did that. I went to them, several of them and said, hey, can you give me 20 or 30 homes that you might want to sell? Tenants stay in place. You're still getting the income, no harm, no foul. And if I can sell them for you, then I can be a, a great outlet. You don't have to vacate homes to sell them. Right. Which costs, you know, like eight plus percent when you count out everything with the downtime in it. And, and, but what I didn't know is whether we could attract eyeballs and buy, to buy the homes because the leap of faith was you'll be sitting, at, you, know, you know, on your computer at home looking at homes in Florida or Atlanta or Phoenix or California, buying them sight unseen through our platform. So we had to build trust. Uh-huh. And so we went out and we, we built our site and we built, basically built a transaction platform and then turned it on to see if anyone would come and make offers on houses. And lo and behold, they did. Mm-hmm. And, but what we realized, we learned a lot along the way, building trust. And you know, this was, I've heard Mark Benioff speak a few times, and he's actually an early investor in our company about trust. And the, the only way you could, you could get a marketplace or really any business off the ground is, is build trust. And so he, he's like, trust, then revenues, then profits. And he's like, the early years, you have to build that trust. And, and so he, he, he encouraged me to really think about how do you build trust in a marketplace where you're trading a couple hundred thousand dollar items? Because that hadn't been done before mm-hmm. online. Mm-hmm. And what we came up with was this idea of a 30-day unconditional money-back guarantee. Mm. So you could do it when, if you're a retail buyer, you could, you, know, you bought a home and you called us up two weeks later and said, you know what? I got cold feet. Fine. We'd resell it at no cost. If we sold it for less, we would make you whole. We would cover the difference. When we did that and we introduced it, our sales started to really wow. take off. And it was very rare that somebody would actually say, do it. I how many times did people do you it? Know, maybe one a month if that. And, and it, you know, generally these, I mean, the homes were inspected, they had tenants in them. And it, you know, occasionally it'd be something where someone hadn't talked to their spouse about it. And like, I, you know, I need to get out of this thing, no problem. And occasionally um, maybe a tenant moved out and, right. or didn't pay and somebody got cold feet. Cause that does happen sometimes. And, you know, if you're going to be a landlord, you have to be prepared for sometimes that's going to happen. And that's fine. We, we let them out of it. And were you able to have the landlord buying that house buy into a pool of houses with others in a fund kind of vehicle and that spreads out their risk for this or no? So we did do a fund called Roofstock One, which was a pooled concept where we actually bought shares of individual properties. Mm-hmm. So common shares were just like any other REIT, but you could also pick what homes you wanted exposure to. And that was an experiment that we did. and. What we decided was it was very difficult to scale that business 
the customer acquisition cost was too high, and we were just really intellectually honest about it. And we liquidated the portfolio last year. Investors did quite well, but it just wasn't scalable. We, we realized it was too, maybe too cute, what we yeah. were trying to do. That maybe the traditional fund structure was, was fine, and we would innovate with strategy. And that's what we're actually looking to do now. We're, we're in the process of looking at a, launching a couple of funds this year. Um, that have very specific strategies. Um, so but that, that would be pooled assets. But the individual properties that we were selling on the marketplace in the early days were, yeah. were simply buying, you know, one investor, one home. Sometimes there were investment clubs uh-huh. that would be buying the homes, but we weren't fractionalizing them uh, at that time. Uh-huh. We are doing some things with blockchain right now, which is a separate conversation, which has, I think is a very interesting application for single family home trades where we've actually tokenized some homes as NFTs wow. and sold them. And it's a quite an interesting use case. Again, what we're trying to do at Roofstock is sort of try a bunch of things, see where we get tra- traction. Right. But the promise of, of blockchain is interesting. I've often said, you know, it's a, it's a solution in search of a problem, right? Well, there's a lot of problems in real estate transactions. It lacks transparency. It's expensive. It's slow. Right. All these things, right? So when you think about the idea of a home in a box, so think about an NFT backed by a house, a mm-hmm. non-fungible token. You can, we, we package up the home in the form of an NFT and you could buy it on chain. And we, we've done four of them now. And we've even in three of them embedded financing that goes along with the token. So you could buy a, you know, a, a home with sort of, call it 70% financing, that when you sell the token, the financing goes along with it. Right. So the buyer doesn't even need to have a great credit. So in a way, it's a great democratizer because the lender is looking to the house for repayment, the income stream from the rentals and the, and the home itself. So the lender could still foreclose. But the beauty of that is, if you think about it, you could buy it essentially in a frictionless way, almost instantaneously, and all the information is available on chain. So you've got this, there's no lack of in, or um, asymmetry between buyer and seller information. Uh-huh. That's unusual, basically impossible in most real estate trades because the seller always has more information than the buyer. So it's all on chain. It could, it could trade and you could charge whatever you want for that transaction, but it's a fraction of, of what it would cost for a, to- a normal listing fee. And then that token could be sold subsequent to that. So We've, we've done a few of them. We've done it on our own balance sheet. And it's sheet. still one-to-one. It's not multiple investors buying pieces of the NFT. It's one person buying one house that's represented by that. One NFT. of our tokens was purchased by a group that then fractionalized the token. Oh, Jesus. Okay. And they sold it to hundreds of investors in Europe. Wow. So it was quite interesting. When you do that, um, th- there's a lot of securities implications when you're, when you're dealing with tokens. We, uh, the way that we structured it, we, we've structured it not as a, not as a security because it's, if we were to sell it and fractionalized, it would have been. Uh-huh. So we didn't want to go that far. We wanted to see if we could actually tokenize one home, one owner. They didn't need to use us for management, you know, so you were really just buying the token. Now, this other group that bought it and fractionalized it, they created a, they created a security and sold it that way. But it's interesting, They're, but it's really a, a great, when you think about, you could skip, it's kind of like going from ground line phones to, to um, you know, going to mobile, right? It's so much more efficient. 
you kind of can go anywhere and you don't right. have to. So you eliminate a lot of the infrastructure needed for a traditional That's 6%. trade. That's 6%. I mean, really what the big one is the 6% and the time. title insurance. And, and the, the time. And That's the, right. And, and it's a boom. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. Let's change subject to two more things before we wrap up. Your business started not as N10, but now it's an N10 business and you have some new strategies. Can you discuss those? Yeah. Yeah. So as I mentioned, we, we, we wanted to be more relevant to the customers over the long term. We've also gravitated more towards institutional clientele. And that's you know, partly driven, maybe largely driven by the last couple of years have been it, it, there's just been a really, uh, it's been a better business opportunity for it's that going after the retail long tail is hard. Uh -huh. It's hard in the, in good times and it's very hard when you're in a tough interest rate environment. So, so we focus where we could, we could really add value on the institutional side. We'll get back to the retail side later, but so providing we, we you know, having been an institutional owner, I knew what the institutional owners wanted to see, mm -hmm. you know, really high fidelity underwriting, great reporting really solid property management, understanding how to optimize these from an asset management standpoint, and then ultimately helping companies get liquidity in the right way. So, mm -hmm. so we've built some tech to help us in all of those different areas. And importantly for us on the um, kind of the asset management side and the sales side, helping, helping customers once they've either built their portfolio or they come to us with a portfolio, what do I do with it? How do I sell it? And by having different channels we can sell through now, we can, we can take a portfolio of say a thousand homes and run it through our, our system and it will tell us how we should liquidate it. Mm. It may say you should take this 800 of these homes and break it up into four geographic portfolios and you should take 50 of them and sell them leased through to investors and the other 150 you should vacate and sell through the MLS because that's the highest and best right. buyer. Uh -huh. And we have, and we have sales channels. We, you could do all of those things through Roofstock. Mm -hmm. And so that's, what's cool about the tech. So if somebody wanted to sell the whole thousand homes, we can do that. Or if they want to optimize, it's going to take longer. We, we can do that too. And so it was really in listening to the customers and developing out the MLS disposition which is how we're selling the majority of the homes today. We're selling them vacant to gen basically owner occupants. That's the best execution uh -huh. for most of the homes that we're selling today. We're selling some to investors that, that are leased, and we are selling some portfolios now again to institutional buyers, but that's been very slow. The la last year, very few portfolios. trades, uh -huh. portfolios. We're in the market right now with quite a large one, and the interest is quite good. So. I think we're, we're seeing that there's more clarity mm -hmm. with rates. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Chairman Powell. Yep. And you, like you mentioned, the Blackstone trade with Tricon, smart money coming back in uh, is a good signal for people. So I think that, and if we can get this relatively large transaction that we're in the market with done, it should be, I don't know whether you'd call it a watershed moment, but for us, it probably is. I think you'll see a lot more activity. Mm -hmm. this and is this like a white label where, most institutional investors, not most, many institutional investors now want to have part of their allocation in this asset class Yeah. instead of build a team or yeah. go to someone outside and it might be you. So you're familiar with the industry structure. Let's just say at a round, round numbers, the average institutional investor has 8 to 12% in real estate, right? 
maybe it's called 10%. Yep. Of that, about a quarter is generally in multifamily. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the allocation to single family rental, it's like 0.3%. Mm -hmm. So we look at multifamily and single family rental together as an allocation. And as we're talking to investors, even if they don't change their resi rental residential allocation, I could easily see a few of those points shifting from traditional apartments to single family rentals because there's a lot to like about the supply demand dynamics of housing versus mm -hmm. apartments, which mm -hmm. we're experiencing now is getting quite overbuilt. So that's where I see a lot of the next three to five years happening as sort of a rebalancing of a lot of these institutions. Right. And it's, you're right, it's setting up a separate account for groups that say, hey, I want to own a thousand homes or 5,000 homes and we turnkey can do it for them. And that's why we're in, in listening again to the, the investors. That's why we're setting up a couple of funds. So for those groups that want to be more passive, we can offer vehicles there because probably 95 plus percent of the capital we've talked to in the past wouldn't invest in a pure separate account structure. We were in a way looking for, you know, kind of a diamond in the rough, a group that wants to be active enough to be the fiduciary. We provide all the, the, the tools. Ultimately, they're buying the houses into their own vehicle. We can now use that same system that we use for third-party investors and use it for our own funds. Mm -hmm. So if somebody wants to come in and say, you know what, I just want to give you $100 million. I like your build-to-rent strategy or right. I like this strategy. And we'll have some capital in the game. And it's a more traditional way for them to do it. And so we'll, so we're looking to, to build that out over the next few years. Uh -huh. And if I think of SFR 2.0, or maybe we're at 3.0 at this point, how does build to rent fit in the thesis of this business? Build to rent is a critical part of this business. Um, we're undersupplied in housing, depending on who you ask, but mm -hmm. you know, perhaps by millions of homes. We need more supply, both supply for owner occupants and renters. So um, I think we need we need it all. Um, a lot of institutional investors prefer build to rent because it looks and smells a lot more like apartments, and so it's easier for them to make the leap to I'm going to buy that community of 150 homes. It's kind of like buying an apartment community. The scattered site stuff seems a little scary. It uh -huh. seems hard to manage. Now, we've been doing it for a long time, and we have investors who prefer the scattered site because you're distributing your risk. Right. And you also, the biggest advantage of scattered site is you have more than one exit. You mm -hmm. can sell to a homeowner or, a, mm -hmm. or an investor. The, the biggest disadvantage of the build to rent is your exit is you're selling the whole community, most likely, right. to an investor. Doesn't mean it's not a good investment. So you don't like condo it 10 years later and sell well, it's off already, one by one. You yeah, could. And most of them are already set up to where you could sell them individually. But would you buy, would you buy a home if there's 150 rentals? Are you going to be the first person to, to buy the home? It's just, I Awkward. think it's harder. Yeah, yeah. Um, not impossible. You, you, you technically can do it. But I just think in general, those are going to trade as big blocks. Mm -hmm. um, but build to rent's important. We have a, a dedicated build to rent business. Um, you know, as we're looking at our fund strategy, um, there's a lot of interest in providing opportunities in the build-to-rent space. Um, the yields, interestingly, are a little bit better in build-to-rent, oftentimes than the scattered site right now. Is that because of operating efficiencies or price? It's because both. Um, and you it's can, built to what you want. Yeah, it's, it's built uh, for renters. These, these I'm talking purpose-built. You yeah. can get a bit of a discount 
from builders because they can have certainty of execution and don't have sales and marketing costs. Right. So you get a little bit of a, a lower basis. And because they're newly built homes, your CapEx is quite low mm-hmm. for the first few years. Mm-hmm. And you have builder's warranties and things like that. And so, um, and if you could get it at a little bit of a lower basis, you can still offer, you know, you don't need to charge as much rent, mm-hmm. right? If, if you get a little bit of a better deal, still get your targeted yield. So it's kind of a win-win. And then you get residents in there who hopefully stay for a while. Makes sense. What haven't we talked about? I don't know. I, I think we spent a fair amount talking about sort of some of the, the pros and cons of the institutional stuff, which I th- always think is interesting. Um, I, I just, I think that my sense is we'll look back in a decade and there will be a meaningfully larger percentage of, of rental homes owned by institutions. And it's not going to feel that different, mm-hmm. you know, cause we're not talking about 50%, 50 or 60% of apartments are owned by institutions and no one really seems to care. I think if it's five to 10% of the rent of, of the rental homes, which is a much l- smaller percentage of mm-hmm. all homes, right. Are owned by institutions. I think it's just going to be much more accepted and it's going to be a choice that people have and part of the housing continuum that doesn't seem so scary. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, Last question on leading voices is always your advice for a young person entering the real estate business. Well, I think uh, appreciate that it is slow to adopt new technologies and change. It's not a bad thing. Just go in with your eyes wide open. I think appreciating and understanding how the world works today, if you're going to disrupt it, is actually quite useful. And, it, you know, I think oftentimes venture capitalists will back kids right out of college or, or business school with an idea, revolutionary idea to disrupt something. And oftentimes that works. A lot of times it doesn't. But in real estate, if you don't understand how it works today, it's, it's harder. Mm. So if you're going to do it, bring in some real estate expertise yep. to give you that color I think one of the reasons we were successful in the early days raising capital is the founding team had deep real estate experience and we knew how the game was played. And so we knew exactly what problems we were solving and we knew what the objections were going to be. We knew what value we were adding and we weren't just building technology for technology's sake. We were building technology to address problems. So, so that would be, and, and I would say it's such a big market. Don't be afraid if the niche feels a little small because the niches in real estate actually really are quite massive and you could build you could build a sizable business in a lot of different ways and there's a lot of areas that that could stand to be improved uh-huh. so i think um go for it I, it's interesting a niches i find that fascinating and early in my career i did seniors housing for about 3 years and i left it because we went into a cyclical downturn and we had no idea what we were doing but if you stick with any niche long enough and you're good and you're smart, it's, they're great, fascinating businesses and they're small enough universes in which you can go You can and become a leader. Yeah. Yeah. And it's exactly right. And eventually these, some of these niches turn into real spaces, right? Big time. 60% of the NAREIT index is in specialty asset classes, not the four major food groups. Second thing is when you talk about technology is learn the basics of the industry first. Because there can be people come in with Ubers and say, oh, ready for disruption, but they don't know how things are done. So you can't move from point A to B without knowing what point A was. Exactly. Really great point. And you've done it multiple times. So congratulations and thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. Really enjoyed it. (laughs) 
I hope that you enjoyed the conversation with Gary. So many interesting threads to the discussion. Santa Fe and Bill Sanders, his combo of tech and real estate experience, and lots of work in the SFR ecosystem. In the intro, I mentioned the ZRG team building event held at a recording studio in Nashville a few weeks ago. They split us into five teams and we were each paired with a Nashville songwriter and each wrote a song. Our team was paired with a guy named Troy Castellano and had a blast of an hour writing up and then recording the song you're about to hear. As you'll hear from the over-eager voices, this was fun for us all, but particularly for me since I got to play guitar with Troy on the background tape. Being recorded playing guitar in a Nashville studio was just too cool for me, and I'm happy to share that tape with our crowing about ZRG. Here it comes. Enjoy. We're creating a future. We're building up your teams. We'll make your business grow new heights. You'll see what we mean. Yeah.